Amen. Good morning, New Hope Church. It is so great to see you. Okay, two things before we go any further. Can we thank the Lord for Sandy and Dan and their band here that they're with us today? We're so grateful. Thank you for leading us to the throne of grace. Thank you so, so much. And then also, I want to just give a shout out to Lexi Heilberg, who is an incredible middle school leader. Can we just praise the Lord for her? God has been so kind to provide such an incredible leader and lover of people, lover of Christ. And I'm so grateful for the ministry that she brings and for her husband, Lucas. Uh, my name is Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here. And I am delighted to be with you as we gather here in this space. For those of you who are joining us as part of our online community, welcome to New Hope Church right here in the Minneapolis area. We don't take for granted uh, that all of you, wherever you are right now, whether here or far and wide, uh, there's a lot of things you can be doing right now. But right now you're joining us as we worship this great God and King, and is he not worthy? He is worthy of our praise, isn't he? And we bless you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. I want to ask you to pray with me now. As uh, Lexi said in the video just now, uh, these are uh, important conversations we're having uh, here at New Hope Church in this series on identity. And I covet your prayers as we continue. Our gracious Father, Thank you for the joy and the privilege of worship, of crying out to you and recognizing your worth. You are a mighty and good and powerful God. And thank you for your only begotten Son, our Savior, our precious Jesus. May we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, be conformed unto his likeness. May it be, God, we will love him more fully and live for him more humbly and more faithfully, and would you help us toward that end? And as we spend time in this love letter called the Bible, learning more of your heart, would you instruct us and also change us? In the name of Jesus, all of God's people said together, amen, amen. In ancient days, in ancient days, God's people were thrust into exile into the land of Babylon, where the values of politics and economics and religion and culture were so radically different than what the people of Israel had experienced before. And the rulers of that land were brutal and oppressive and demeaning. But do you know what God did? Despite all of that, God told his people, he said, I want you to bless that culture. I want you to be people of peace among your neighbors. I want you to go in, and I want you to show them my love. It is the prophet Jeremiah who reveals this instruction. You, you'll see it here in front of you. Jeremiah chapter 29 Verse 7, look with me right here. God says to his people, but seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And you know that word welfare in the ancient language that God's people spoke, that word welfare is the word shalom. 
peace, blessing, goodwill, well-being, welfare. So in the face of all that is uncomfortable and painful and broken, God says, you go be a person who conveys my goodwill. You go be a person of peace. You go shalom, the community. That's the invitation. That was the invitation in those ancient days. And it is the invitation for all of us disciples of Jesus in our day and age. In the face of things that are so uncomfortable and so difficult, we have the privilege of stepping into the spaces around us as representatives of God, conveying his heart of love for the people, his grace and his truth, conveying such with humility and with the peaceableness that he has valued throughout time and which is embodied most chiefly in his son, our great and glorious Lord Jesus. But this is so incredibly hard. It is so difficult in the world in which we find ourselves. And certainly in a world, for example, where, where voices in the public square would do things like, for instance, telling nine-year-olds you know, what gender confusion is all about and how they need to make a choice. Nine-year-olds can barely choose between apple slices and french fries at McDonald's. But then also it's a difficult world where followers of Christ, evangelical Christians, trade in spiritual fruitfulness and take hold of the commodity of outrage and peddle it like it's gold. And then all the while give a wink and a nod at leaders that we idolize who themselves are brazen in their own perversity. And so what kind of power do we have to speak into the broken things of the world. Thus it is our God brings to us a vision. Shalom. Shalom the world around you. Be people of peace, people of goodwill. People willing to go to the places that are hard. Embody in my heart of grace and truth. It is, as it were, an incredible opportunity for you and me to carry uh, these two things, to carry uh, our, our posture. Here is our posture, our non-negotiable convictions that we hold humbly. But this is what we believe. Thus saith the Lord God. But then also, here is our gesture. Our gesture of hope, our gesture of peace, a gesture of goodwill and hospitality and love. And we need to be a people who know how to steward both our posture and our gesture. And our world is dying for such, literally, for sure. And this ought to be our tone. It ought to be our tone individually as disciples, and it ought to be our tone as a church family. And it certainly needs to be the tone that we have as we explore matters as important as gender and sexuality and community. We need to be a humble people and a loving and caring people. We need to have a posture that is unshakable and rooted. And we need to have a gesture that conveys grace and truth with warmth and hope. Now there are, there are some who are listening to my voice and you want me to angrily call out 
our LGBTQ plus neighbors. And I'm not going to do it. Because to do so would be reductionistic and, and would just play into the culture war sticks that are so common within evangelicalism today. That's kind of all we're known for, by the way, in the public square. Others of you, others of you are just waiting on me to be affirming to our friends who have same-sex attraction or who have gender questions. I'm not going to do that either because to do so would be a clear departure from God's beautiful vision for suffering and glory and creation and redemption. And we can't possibly walk away from those things. So this is hard, it remains hard. And then I know, listening to my voice right now, our friends and guests, right here in this room or far and wide, that identify as those with same-sex attraction or, or some kind of uh, gender question. And this is a terrifying conversation. It's uncomfortable and you wonder, could you possibly be safe? And it's a fair question, especially when I'm saying to you, I'm not going to angrily call you out and yet you're thinking what well, yet you're angrily calling me out with these uh th this counsel from from this word of god and i want you to know i receive that i hear that and i understand the tension that that creates but i also want you to know that i love you very much and i am so thankful to be your friend and your pastor some of you or perhaps that stranger that's willing to be a person of peace in your life, even if we don't agree to agree. But most of all, my affection for you is nothing compared to his, because Jesus loves you with an undying love, an undying, unqualified love. And he knows you by name, he sees you, and this is his house and he welcomes you. You're welcome here. You're welcome here. Now, today, what we're doing is celebrating God's beautiful vision for a covenant marriage between one man and one woman. That is God's vision. And this vision has within it this joy, which is sexual pleasure. And what a wonderful gift that that is. But understand, that's certainly not the end-all, be-all of marriage. As a matter of fact, one of the other key pieces of a holistic and healthy marriage is that it be a catalyst for putting forward God's vision within the created order. It's not the only catalyst because singleness matters too. Jesus was single. Many of Jesus' initial followers were single. The Apostle Paul was a single man, and indeed, in one of his writings in the New Testament, he lauded singleness as maybe the preferred way. And so understand, singleness matters, but for our purposes today, we're talking about marriage and the fact that marriage also matters, and God uses marriage as a catalyst, as a catalyst to carry out his mandate that humans flourish 
and that they cultivate and keep the created order in a way that brings him glory and brings great good around us. Marriage helps that. Marriage is a key part of that. Now, in an epic far removed from when far removed from the creation narratives of Genesis 1 and 2, in a whole other era of time, we hear our Lord Jesus speak definitively regarding marriage. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, unpacks this for us. And I want to direct your attention there. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. You'll, you'll see it on the screens here. And I'm going to read it, and I want you just to follow along. Just, just listen very thoughtfully. Now, by the way, before I read it, let me just ask you, though, uh, to put yourself in the crowd. Jesus is walking the dusty trails of Galilee and Judea, and, and uh, he's going back and forth with the people in the crowd, and some Pharisees, actually, are the ones that ask him some questions about marriage and, and actually marriage and divorce, if you look at the broader context. And, and here's Jesus' answer. Now, you're part of the crowd. I'm part of the crowd. And we're just listening to Jesus. And here's what he says. Uh, here's what it says. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee. He entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking... <clears throat> Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Well, let's look at the next part. He answered, have you not read? By the way, pause. Remember our questions God asked series here earlier this winter? One of the questions was, have you not read? All right? God, look, we wonder, what does God think? And God says, well, have you not read? You've got this love letter, and it's for you. All right? So, so Jesus says, have you not read? That he created them, he who created them from the beginning, made them male and female. All right, and we talked about this somewhat in depth last weekend. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay? Now this is the word of God. And this is a powerful statement. And I, I really appreciate the fact that, that Jesus goes all the way back to the ancient days. He connects it to the creation story itself. This issue of marriage and maleness and femaleness. But also of community that's involved. You'll notice there's parents and there's this public that evidently has some influence here. And then God himself, what God has joined together. Well, there's all kinds of observations we can make from these verses. But what I want to do is highlight just three of them. And I, I would encourage you to capture them. I think they can be helpful. I want to invite you to highlight or take hold of three of them. Here's the first one. Again, you'll see it up here. There is a covenant that God makes with a male and a female, securing their marital relationship. And then I define covenant. This is my definition of covenant. You might have a better one, and if you do, I'd love to hear it sometime, all right? A covenant is a binding relational structure usually put together by a sovereign, all right? And, we, and I, I, that, that, that definition 
uh, really reflects the spirit of covenants that you see all through the scriptures, the uh, Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and, and so forth. Uh, but in the context of marriage, basically a covenant is made by God with a man and a woman securing their marital relationship. It's a binding relational structure that the sovereign facilitates. Now, the language that we see in Matthew 19 is very important. And so in verse 6, it says what God has joined together. And in the language that Jesus is using, the culture in which he finds himself, please hear me, church, that language is the language of a farmer. Now, the word farmer isn't there. But the folks in the crowd listening to Jesus, they know exactly what he's talking about. When he speaks uh, originally probably in the Aramaic tongue and it's translated into the Greek language for public consumption here in written form uh, originally. And, and as Jesus is speaking, he's using agricultural language or intonations that the crowd gets. The picture of joining together literally, please hear me, is of a farmer, and he takes two oxen, and he brings them together, and he slips a yoke over their necks and ties that all together, securing it, all right? And so what Jesus is saying is, we have a divine farmer, and he takes a man and a woman, and he unites them together under his yoke, for the purpose of fulfilling his purposes and cause, all right? Now, with this picture then, we have God is the one who facilitates and sanctions a marriage. And the image of the farmer bringing the oxen together is just a word picture to help elucidate that. And by the way, this is why those, those of you guys that live with your girls Right? As if you're married, but you're really not. Okay? Well and good. I get the practicality of it. I get the, some of the puppy love of it. But understand, that is a clear departure from God's better flourishing vision for you. Where he comes along and he sanctions and he brings together. He ties you together. Binds you together. Under his covenant covering. And I just want to say to you, particularly you... You guys that are in situations like that, yield to the Lord and surrender to him and let him be the sovereign over your relationship with that woman that you care about, all right? And by the way, that's good for all of us wives and husbands, husbands and wives, no matter how long we've been married. Uh, it's good for those living together to go, oh, wait, I could be under God's covenant care in a unique way. I should do that. But it's also good for the rest of us who are married to remember that we are there and we need to steward it. A second observation from the text. You'll see that up here as well. Sexual consummation ratifies the covenant marriage relationship. Sexual consummation ratifies the covenant marriage relationship. Let me just say it even simpler. Sex tells the story that we're married. All right? Now, I'm saying this right here because I want to underscore this is in contrast to having a winsome preacher winking and nodding and saying nice things uh, and reading a well-prepared script at a ceremony. That matters, 
But, and, and yes, we make vows and all that, and those things we must keep. But what ratif- in God's eyes, from Genesis 1 to Matthew 19 and well beyond, in God's eyes, what ratifies the covenant is that that man and that woman have sexual consummation, sexual intercourse. I bet you never heard that before. But understand, this now raises the bar on why sexual behavior must be stewarded so well. Because in the eyes of God, it is a consummating pleasure that ratifies a covenant relationship put together by the divine farmer under his glorious yoke. Okay? And we see this in Matthew 19. Jesus refers to this twice. Twice in those few verses, he talks about coming together as one flesh. And that is a Hebrew euphemism for sexual consummation. And notice, by the way, this has nothing to do with procreation. Procreation matters. And certainly, uh, sex uh, gives way to babies. All right? It can, for sure. But when you read in Genesis 2, you don't see any of that. What you do read is that the woman and the man were naked and they had no shame together. The pleasure, the gift which is sex, is just that, a gift. And babies are a nice addition. Sex is a gift. A gift given by God, it ratifies the relationship, something that God has intended. I want you to notice with me, look here from Genesis chapter two, these words, verse 23. The man said, as he's looking at this woman that God has brought to him, Adam looks at Eve, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Now listen to me, dear ones. This is so important, what I'm about to say. We've, we talked about this last week and even on some level the week before and certainly today. I want to highlight this. The woman at creation is taken from the man and is presented fully, autonomously as a human being, similar to the man but uniquely distinct. Remember the Ezer Kenegdo we talked about last weekend, this warrior partner that God brings alongside of the man? Very powerful. In fact, I've heard from a number of you this week how meaningful that was to hear. But I want you to notice that with sexual consummation, hear this, the woman who had been taken from the man, friends, what I'm about to say is so important, please hear it. The woman that is taken from the man in sexual consummation, they reunite, they come back together as one, one flesh, Jesus says. Now understand, it is only in that context because she was taken from him, now they come back together, if you will, It's only in that context that there can be true completion, true consummation, true reunification. And please hear me, any other arrangement beyond one man and one woman in a sanctified, sanctioned, now ratified covenant marriage can't work. Because the design doesn't allow for it. Because the design is that that which had been taken from the other now comes back and is reunified as one. And same-sex relationships can't do that. 
And so this is God's design. A third observation, third observation, very simple, but very important. Community matters to God. Community matters to God. Now, you've heard me say this many times from this platform. God, the Father, and the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, they, he, embody community. God is the personification of community. He loves community. This is why, by the way, if you remember from our conversation last week, he sees that Adam is isolated and alone, and the first time after God has said, this is good, and this is good, and this is good, referring to creation, then he steps back and looks at all of creation and says, it's all very good. He sees Adam alone, and he says, and that's not good. Amen. Right? Community matters to God. And in the passage that we're reading where Jesus is speaking about issues of covenant marriage, notice he talks about the parents, the man will leave father and mother, and then he talks also about, about the public. In verse six, in fact, look at it with me here. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let's leave that up for just a minute. Because in this one verse, we have the summation of the whole passage. We have that, that sex ratifies that which God is joining together as the divine farmer. And the whole community has some input into this for good or bad or ugly. The working assumption is the community won't get in the way of what God is doing. And unfortunately, in public spaces all around the world and certainly here, the community is trying to dictate to God how it all should look. And God has a better plan. God has a more beautiful plan. It's a good plan. It's a plan where there's fit. It's a plan that brings glory to our divine farmer. The community needs to support healthy, holistic covenant marriage between one man and one woman. And the community also needs to get out of the way when it wants to decry such and add to it. Because God says, in effect, don't mess with my design. But I want to say something else about community. And friends, if you've heard nothing yet, what I'm about to say is so incredibly important. And I've been really struggling with how to communicate it well enough. You see, these are the easy parts right here. But I want you to imagine just as community influences either for good or ill marriage, so marriage influences the community. We didn't take time to read it, but in Jeremiah chapter 29, before we get to verse 7 that we did read earlier, God says to God's people as they are there in exile in Babylon, he says, have families, marry, build your livelihoods. 
And it's then, he says, go and rejoice the community. Shalom it. Bless it. Marriage matters in part because, as we've already alluded to here today, it is a catalyst for blessing the culture around us. And so when you have the, the purity within marriage, when you have the delights, when you suffer through the hard things together and there's forgiveness and you're keeping short accounts and you're reaching for God's best and you're intentional and you're hospitable and you're warm, you're gracious, you're merciful, you're forgiving, all of these things. This is an incredible witness to a watching world. And I think it's so much why the evil one hates it so badly and wants to deface it. The Apostle Paul talks about the power of marriage. I want you to see these words from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become, say that word with me, one flesh, that phrase ready, one flesh. This, again, this is, this is Paul. We've just heard Jesus. This goes all the way back to the ancient days. Have you not read? The two shall become one flesh. Paul goes on, he says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And for sure. You see, among many things marriage is, is a word picture for the way Christ and his bride, the church, are. Christ is the groom, the church is the bride. Now granted, this is speaking of the redeemed community. Those who are washed in the blood of Jesus. Right? But it is nonetheless speaking of community and it's using marriage as the witness. And so here's then the question that I wrestle with and I want you to wrestle with me on this. As we're talking about gender and sexuality and community, could our friends and neighbors and family who are same-sex attracted and or wrestling with gender questions would they find hope in our community or would they find hate? Would they experience grace, hospitality, mercy, love? Or would we be so scandalized that they show up that they would not be able to get out of here fast enough? Is it possible that, I mean, if we're talking about marriage, we Christians spend so much time in the broader meta-narrative of LGBTQ+, we spend so much time talking about marriage and one man and one woman, and rightly so. That is the good Father's beautiful vision for, for suffering and glory and creation and redemption and for human flourishing. Yes, but since we spend so much time thinking about it, are we willing to see it as a catalyst to create a community that is safe for all broken people? Even those that we claim, despite our slander and gossip and other things, we claim to 
peddle the worst of the sins, could they be welcome? Could they be seen? And what of those among our same-sex attracted and gender-questioning friends and neighbors and family, what among those who really are eager to follow Christ and want so badly to walk out a holy ethic but it's so hard and the questions are so deep and the confusion is so real and the suffering is, is, is beyond what most of us can even comprehend. Could they walk with us as fellow pilgrims as together we all deal with our brokenness? Could we be a community like that? Because if we can't, then we need to not say another word ever about LGBTQ+. Which leads me to ask a question, and you're going to see it here, and I'm, I'll tell you now, it's a really long question, I'm sorry. But I want you to see it up here. Here it is. I'll read it, and I want you to just bear with me. In fact, you know what would be a fun exercise? Can we just read this together? Let's do that together right now. Okay, here we go. What if healthy marriages where broken but redeemed men and women modeled radical love and intense grace were the catalysts for safe and beautiful community where people, including those having same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria, could find not affirmation of sin, but mercy and hope as together we reach for Jesus' better things. How might this, like with the exiles of old, shalom the world around us? Leave that up for a moment, and I want you to take your phones and take a picture of that question. And I want us to be a community that wrestles with this. Because I'm here to tell you, our public spaces are starving for this kind of vision. And there is no better people than the people of God to fulfill that vision. Before I pray, I want to tell you about my friend Darren. One day, and you, you guys can take that down now, thank you. One day, years ago, I'm in one of, my, one of my educational spaces, and my friend Darren and I would go out to a local 24-hour pancake house and study. We'd be working on Hebrew, we'd be studying Greek, we'd be nerding out on supralapsarianism and all the things that you're like, what in the world, don't, it's not worth your time, but nonetheless, one day, one evening, I picked him up late, and we headed over to the restaurant, and he just seemed on edge. We got into the door, and we sat down at the booth. The lady came. She took our order. We kinda, we've, we've known her. We, we're bantering back and forth, all the stuff you do when you frequent a place. And She left, and I looked at Darren. I said, are you okay? And beads of sweat started pouring up on his forehead and his hands shaking a little bit. He says, well, not really. I'm having a tough time. I said, what's up, buddy? And he looked around. 
And he started crying. He says, I gotta tell you something, but I'm so afraid you're gonna walk away from me. I've never told anybody, and it's hard. So, I mean, I can't imagine what he's gonna tell me. I said, Darren, there's nothing that you will ever tell me that would keep me from loving you or walking away from you, no matter what. I'm all ears. And as quietly and forcefully as he could, he says, I'm gay. I've not told anybody, and I'm terrified. And I'm struggling to figure out how I'm going to be a gay man who aspires to be a pastor and wants to walk with God and live a holy life. I don't know what to do, but I know I want to do right by God. But I'm so afraid I'm going to be rejected by you and everybody else. Does Darren have a safe place here? Does he have a safe place at your dining room table? And not just a safe place to eat a meal, but a safe place to walk a journey. And when Darren finished, I mean, I'm crying. We're both crying into our pancakes. And I stood up and I just walked over to the other side of the booth and I took his hand and I pulled him up and we just embraced. And he just sobbed. And I said, Darren, I love you with all my heart and I am not going anywhere. Oh, friends, can we be the people? Can we be the church that says that? I love you with all my heart and I'm not going anywhere. Would you stand with me? Oh, Father. Let these words wash over us as a vision that is also our prayer. So imagine, Father, me saying this, us saying this to those, us modeling this, these words. Will you let me be your servant? Let me be as Christ to you. Pray I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. We are pilgrims on the journey. We are travelers on the road. We are here to help each other walk the mile and bear the load. I will hold the Christ light for you in the nighttime of your fear. I will hold my hand out to you and speak shalom that you long to hear. God, help us be that person. Help us be that people. Help us be that community.